Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? What the fuckadelics? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. Wow, did I just say my name weird? I'm Mark Marin. This is my show, WTF. Welcome to it. How are you? Everybody okay? Thanks for all the excited feedback about the James Franco episode. Seems that people really dug it. It was good. Nice long one. Dug in. Did a lot of listening. I've been doing a lot of listening lately. More listening than I'm generally known for. Usually I'm known for listening and interjecting. And now, now I'm just experimenting with just listening. We should all do some listening. Anyway, there's actually a sign in my garage that says, what people need is a good listening to. Someone sent that to me. It was a gift. I took it as a gift and as a not a passive aggressive thing. Superfan Amy years ago, I think, sent that to me. I think it was her, but... Uh, yeah, so that's just up there, and, and now I'm referring to it. Because at some point, I'm going to have to dismantle this shrine of listening here at the garage, but not soon. Doesn't seem like it's going to be soon. I'm here now. I'm here in it. I'm doing the show. Today on the show, uh, I'm going to talk to uh, my old friend Judd Apatow. He's got a special. And Loudon Wainwright, who also Judd is used in movies. They're not together. Two different talks. But that's, uh, that's what's ahead. That's what's ahead for you. But first, Europe. Hello, Europe. I'm coming to see you this spring, Europe. Monday, April 16th in London, England. Thursday, April 19th in Stockholm, Sweden. Sunday, April 22nd in Oslo, Norway. Monday, April 23rd in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. And Thursday, April 26th in Dublin, Ireland. It's, uh, it's my few parts of the world tour. Go to WTFPod.com and check out the tour page to get venue and ticket information. All right? I'm coming for a little while. I don't, that is the tour I planned. I want to go see some places. I want to see the world before it burns. I'd like to see some parts of the world before they're gone. I'd like to get out and enjoy my life now that I've worked so hard all these years before it goes away. See, I'm trying to be, that's a, those two tones. That's the upbeat. And then I, I just undercut it with the, uh, with the uh, terrified. Oh my God terrified but not uh but not running like oh no unbelievable but uh yeah so it's been an interesting week i haven't talked to you since last week but i think i recorded that before uh most of california was on fire and before i uh, was nominated for a critics choice award see how it comes the yin and the yang hey is that fire going to consume my new house 
I don't know. I don't know if it is. Do I? It's time to spend some time watching fire apps, watching fire maps, watching for when the fire comes. I feel horrible for people who lost property, lost pets, lost homes, not in that order necessarily, uh, whose lives were compromised by these fires. But there are fires all over fucking California. And it's terrifying because the brain just seeks to make like, I, you know, there's always been fires, right? Not like this. Just like, I don't know, a fire might break out in the fucking garage in three minutes. It's just like spontaneous fires. But most of the people I know up north and uh, and around uh, people I come in contact with at work, uh, their homes are okay. But again, uh, uh, I, I hope everything's okay out there for everyone. I feel bad for people that uh, that got compromised by these fires. But it's like, this can't, is, it the, is this normal now? Like, I've always been kind of nervous about California in general. I, I can't, I want to run, man. But then it's like nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. And I believe there are some places to run and there are a few places to hide. But uh, I dug in, I dug in, I got a new place. And uh, I guess if it's going to go down, it's going to go down. But I've actually done jokes about this, about these fires and about you years ago. It's just crazy. I went out, uh, Sarah, the painter, got some emergency kits. We got that. I guess I'm going to have to get a generator. One way or the other, you better be preparing for the end of something. And I'm not saying that in a tone of terror or existential despair. It's a practical term. Prepare for the end. All right? On the other side of the fires, I was nominated for a Critics' Choice Award. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, a Critics' Choice nomination. I Look, folks, for me, I didn't anticipate being nominated for anything ever. You know, I thought the one shot we had was a Peabody, but they they didn't they they poo pooed it. The Peabody's poo pooed us, I guess. I thought that was the one that would that would have been the one possible, the one window of opportunity to get any accolades. I certainly didn't anticipate getting any accolades for acting or for anything for stand up. I I don't know. I, I'm not being falsely humble. It's just like looking at my life. It just was not part of any of the uh the possibilities but so so the critics choice award is a is a welcomed excitement and i am uh, grateful for it and i'm excited about it and uh, glow the show got several alice and brie got one betty gilpin got a nomination i think the the show got a nomination so everybody on set was excited and we needed that excitement over the last few days because uh we were we were shooting the show up in pomona on a set that uh God, I don't want to spoil anything. Would it spoil anything? I but why what maybe it'll just provide it'll provide suspense. We were on a uh, a hospital set in Pomona for 2 days, uh 12 hour shoots running well into the evening, 1 or 2 in the morning. So it was nice to have the extra added excitement of uh of knowing that where the show is getting this recognition. It was uh, it was fun times. I'm trying you know on a day-to-day basis for whatever reason I experience a great deal of uh, dread and terror in my head. And I, I know many of you know this and I'm not experiencing it right now, but I actually had a moment on set the other night where it's like, look, I wait around a long time to do three lines on Friday night. We had shot all day. I was there. We were there from like 12 to one in the morning. And we did, I did one scene in the morning, which was a fun scene, no lines, but it was a fun. It was me and Allison and Betty and Chris Lowell. And then uh, pretty much I waited around like eight hours, about eight hours. And they did everyone's coverage. All the women were there 
you know, all 13, 14 of them. And we covered everything except my point, you know, my coverage with where the camera is on me. It was the last shot of the night of a 12 and a half hour night at one in the morning. And, uh, and, and for some reason, instead of, um, feeling like, well, fuck man, what kind of gig is this? What, what is all this waiting around this acting business? I just locked in and I'm like, make it a good few minutes, man. This is what you wait for. This is what acting is. Enjoy this minute and a half and just, you know, act this shit out of it. I was doing a, a, a beat with the, all of them that had a beat with Betty. Who's great great actress and and we just had the moment and it felt very rewarding that's a step in the right direction (laughs) it wasn't like man was that worth waiting for i'm trying to tell you that i turned a corner and i i i've grown to appreciate hey if this is the window if this is the moment if this is where i get to act on this episode if these two lines are where it's at for the day then lean in man and I guess that's pretty good advice for anybody. Like if you have those moments where you got to show up and do your job, you know, fully focused, you know, if for even if it's only for a half an hour that it's expected out of you and you spend the other 12 hours, you know, looking at a computer or pretending to work, make the best out of that. Make the best out of that half hour. Make the best out of that five minutes, man, because it's all burning. Everything is on fire. Oh my God. So Judd came by because he's got a special Judd Apatow. The return premieres tomorrow, December 12th on Netflix. And we got into it. It's always good to see Judd. It's always good to have a chat and it always ends up longer than we think. And it always ends up pretty engaged because, uh, you know, we do what we do. So this is me uh, hanging out with Judd Apatow. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. For a bit. That's the thing about your special. Let's start there. Technique-wise, you bold motherfucker used a wireless. There was no aversion to using a fucking wireless? At least I didn't go with the Janet Jackson, uh, you know, McDonald's uh, wireless. No, you can't do that. No, no, no. Of course not. But I don't trust wireless mics. I'm like some weird old timey guy. (laughs) Like if I don't know that it's connected to something and they always seem bulky and they don't slide in and out properly and you just went ahead and used it. Well, I, uh, I have a different issue, which is. I am not that professional as a comedian, and I will constantly trip over the cord. (laughs) (laughs) So you knew that. You're like, I prefer not to have more mess up here than necessary. I I literally find myself at the comedy store tripping over the cord so often that uh, when they said we have a cordless, I was like, yes, thank you. (laughs) Didn't even think about it. So I, you know, I watched you work on a lot of the material for uh, for months and months, 
and um, and then I, I I didn't know like a you know a third of it. Where were we hiding that stuff? Did you just pull it out that night? Well, what's interesting is you know when you do the improv and the comedy store. There's so much material that just doesn't work there. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You know, longer stories, yeah. things that take time when you need people to pay more attention. So, right. You know, there was always a larger hunks that that worked in theaters or places where people were. Paying oh, so you more were working. Attention. You were working that stuff out elsewhere. Yeah, certain bits where I thought, well, this is an eleven minute the poem bit. bit. Yes, the poem. But I read a I read a poem <laughs> that I wrote when I was uh, fourteen when my parents were getting divorced, yeah. which I, I stumbled onto, and it's so sad, but makes me laugh so much. I wrote poems in exactly the same cadence. That there was a, a weird kind of naive social importance. Yes, <laughs> to what you're saying, and the D- Dr. Seuss rhyme scheme. Yeah, but you had a little free <laughs> verse there. There was a. It was. It wasn't all Dr. Seussy. What I found interesting about finding this poem, one is that the poem is basically saying, I'm an enormous amount of pain, but maybe this pain will one day make me a good comedian. And I wrote that when I was 14. That's basically what the poem is about. (laughs) You already knew. But, you know, when I was a kid, I had this sense that I was supposed to be good at certain things if I wanted to be in comedy. Yeah. And so... And I tried everything. I, I tried juggling pins. I, I tried to write sketches. I just took a quick pop at everything. What, what were the other ones? Guitar playing? Guitar like, playing I was terrible at. You know, I, wanted I like to be, that you went with the juggling. Did you figure out how to get the balls in the air? I could juggle the pins. Then I bought the fire pins no, that you could light on. on fire. And then never worked up the courage to light them. <laughs> and that's why it took you so long to make a special. Exactly. <laughs> I was so afraid. And then one day I wrote a poem. Uh-huh. And it's it's interesting. It's a real window into how my brain works uh, or worked at the time. But the, I find the most interesting part is I never wrote a poem again. Right. So I wrote this long poem. And then in my head, I must have thought, yeah, you're not good at this. Yeah. And stopped, which is a metaphor for my stand-up career. <laughs> you know, my brain wants to shut it down. But oddly... <laughs> Uh, and I, you know, because I wrote poetry in college and I took it seriously at some point, yeah, even after high school, even after my big Ginsbergian uh, assault on uh, on the, the world we live in at 14. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think that writing comedy is poems. I think that jokes are poetic. There's rhythm. There's there, there's a, a turn of phrase. There's yes. a lot of things that are, are very poetic elements. Yeah, I agree. Every once in a while when something's worded perfectly... It feels a little poetic. This is the one that is so truthful, but I was proud of this thought, and it's so simple, but I talk about how my 15-year-old just seems so unhappy to be in the house sometimes with yeah. me and my wife. Right. And and I, I say, you know, when uh, you have four people, it is a family. When it is three, it is a, a child observing a weird couple. <laughs> that's as close as I get to poetry. It just says it all. It's like a haiku. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, so, th- I mean, arguably, I think that you committed your life to poetry. That's the way I'm going to look at it. I like it. I mean, I would have liked to have been a poet, but where do you really go with that? You know what I mean? Yes. It's like maybe you got a couple books that nine people read and you teach somewhere. That's the best that you could hope for. Yeah, that always re- leads to the, the debate how many people do you need to watch your stuff or like your stuff? Well, you well, I mean, you know the answer to that. I need it to work in China. <laughs> I need it to work in Russia. 
<laughs> That's the funny thing in the business now is everything about the business is like, will things work overseas? And and you get in these meetings where there's a subtle subtext, which is like, you know, is there anything you could chuck in it? Like a, a, a an actress from another country that might bring in the Spanish crowd. And then when you try it, it yeah. never works. You always bomb in the country of the foreigner you put in You've the You've tried movie. that? You've done that? Well, just in the sense that sometimes we work with people from other countries because we love them, not not to right, do it right, for a right. marketing reason, but I've never felt a bump in that country because, because <laughs> I, I had the Russian guy in a few scenes. <laughs> but they do want you to think that way, and they also... Uh, you know, are are trying to reach people that don't understand verbal humor. Yeah. So there's also this feeling generally yeah. that, you know, movies work best when you're blowing up shit. Blowing up shit or just like very broad physical comedy or expressions. Uh, yes. It's and, and you and you yeah. you think I don't know how to reach people in other countries. And every once in a while a movie blows up around the world. You yeah. have no idea why. Uh, we made this movie um called Begin Again. Yeah. Uh and it was uh, Mark Ruffalo uh, movie that John Carney, the guy who made Once Made. Yeah. And it did okay in the United States. In in South Korea. Yeah. Makes $25 million. That movie. It's, gig it's gigantic in one country on earth. South Korea loves Kira Knightley in a musical. Uh, and we don't know why. You, you can't try to appeal because you'll never figure There's it no, out. You can't, you can't manufacture lightning in a bottle. There's it just no, happened. There was no part of the process where I thought, South Korea's going to love this. This is going to kill there. <laughs> we got an ace in the hole in South Korea. Uh, so... I like that the special and that, you know, your whole approach to stand up given your, your 20 year hiatus. Was yes. it? Uh, it was yeah 22 years, a 22 year hiatus yeah. <laughs> from when you did the young comedian special 19, what 92, 92. And then you go on, you make a billion dollars. You make a lot of movies, TV shows, you write jokes for other comics. And now finally you feel confident enough. <laughs> <laughs> to get back to what you started out doing. But the reason I bring it up is because I thought you were very humble and you had a lot of humility around the, the approach. You didn't come in swaggering. You you no. were you were sort of like, I know where I'm at. I'm you know, I'm I'm a I'm a, I'm a strong feature at this point. <laughs> I always say that the uh the only show since I started pursuing stand up aggressively uh -huh. in uh, 2014 where I really felt like I did badly and got nervous was one night at the Comedy Cellar when you walked in the room. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Come on. I got really self-conscious, and and I had just started. Maybe I had been doing it a few months again. Me? And you walked in the room, and on stage, all I thought was, Marin knows this sucks. <laughs> and I didn't feel that way with, you know, Ray Romano watching or wow. any, anybody watching. Dice Clay was watching me one night. I just... For some reason, uh, I uh, I felt so connected to you that he, the voice in my head that's telling me that I suck is also Mark Maron's voice. <laughs> <laughs> so when I finally was doing well enough that you would indicate to me, like, it's going good. You got some good stuff. I really relaxed generally. <laughs> Just recently? Just recently. You'd be like, stuff's looking good. Or I, you know, the best compliment is when you hear from someone else, like, Maron said you got some good shit. I'm like, oh, thank God. 
All right, you're like, Attell said you're funny now. <laughs> oh, okay. you got one of those? Oh, that was a big one. That's the, a huge one. The Attell likes that's, yeah, that, that's, what, that's the one we all want. <laughs> exactly. It's for him to say anything about yeah. you. But I, you know, when I started doing it again, yeah. it's, it's so funny because I was so into stand-up from the time I was 17 to 24, yeah. but really from the time I was 10 to 24, that when I stopped, I was pretty burnt out at just doing seven days a week of nothing but thinking about jokes, writing jokes, yeah. watching comedians. So I didn't even look at comics for a decade. And only maybe around 2010, 11, did I go, what's everybody doing? I didn't yeah. even go to the improv right. for 15 years, probably. Right. Really? Even to watch. So I didn't even... And then I started feeling like, even as a comedy producer, I should know what's happening. Yeah, but that sounds like somebody who, like, you know, quit something like that was hurting them, and and uh, but they had no control. It's like an addiction. Like I can never go back to where that's happening. I just <laughs> lost interest. In really? It. Not. It was an anger. I felt just bored of watching it, and and then slowly, I'm trying to think who was. I like think the, that's a grown-up thing. Who was the comedian that got me excited again? I don't. I started watching Hannibal a little bit. Yeah. And he was making me laugh. I think watching, uh, you know, you know, there was a few people that I thought, wow, like Maria Bamford. Oh I, yeah, I, I remember hearing her on your show. Yeah, you you drove somewhere with yeah, her, right? Yeah, and I was really taken by that. Oh yeah, and, that you, was, and you not seen her before that? No. Oh man. And then I started looking that up, and then I and then I realized, oh, there's some amazing people, yeah, right. who are a lot better than the people when I started, and different. You know, I mean, yeah. yeah, sure. There was, there's always some slouches around. Yes, but you know, there were some great guys then too yeah. when we started, or like whenever that was. Ninety two, you said the Young Comedian Special was. Yes, and I, so I started in eighty nine. I think officially, you mm -hmm. know, making money. Yeah, 80, probably eighty seven, eighty eight, doing it. But there were good people around. But there was, you know, the remnants of the road of that first wave, yeah. and there were a lot of those kind of, you know, uh, mid level headliners yeah. with the, you know, rap closers <laughs> or yes. somersaults. But there was always like, you know, there was some people in, in the generation before us where you're like well that was really unique those guys are really sure. sort of doing something completely different and there's a lot of them around now i mean back then it really was hicks uh, yeah. you go see bill hicks for that for that thing the, he, yes. he was singular in that yes. stephen wright was singular in that yes in his thing goldthwaite yeah when you would go see him in the late 80s and of course kinnison who to this day I've never seen anyone more exciting to watch. Just, yeah, just menacing. Just to Electric. see to see Kinnison uh, before the crowd knew who he was was the most exciting comedy <laughs> you've ever seen, and it really can't be recaptured. Like people walking in a room not knowing this guy's coming and not knowing the joke, the point of view, and he starts screaming at them. Yeah. The place yeah. it would erupt. Half the place would walk out. Yeah, and. There's no one like that now. This is an exciting panic. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I actually, for some reason, I, on uh, on the random thing on my iPod in the car, the the album went on. I have, like, that first yeah. album, Hotter Than Hell, or Louder Than Hell, you can't, it's not on CD, so someone's got to rip it. And yeah. someone ripped it at some point and gave it to me. And I listened to the whole thing through, and I've always been a guy that listens to that once a year. And I had experiences with him. And then, like, this was the first time where I was sort of like, eh, that was really kind of wrong-minded and shitty, that one. <laughs> Well, it's all so awful. Yeah. I, like I remember laughing. I mean, I knew it was, but like it, it, I felt the slight offense for the first time. <laughs> so, like you know, he was definitely a monster, but that it, the the intensity and the the balls of it all, you don't see that much. I, it felt like 
I guess looking back, if you, you were to try to define the Sam Kinison character, it would be the world has broken him. Yes. And so in a way... And the world will pay. <laughs> <laughs> and so you enjoyed it from that point of view yeah. that he was, it, it was a person in meltdown. So his opinions, which were so wrong at times, yeah. you never felt like the joke was he believes it. You felt like this is what happens when you oh, get broken. Cautionary tale. Yes, you just right. completely lose your mind and start screaming at yeah. starving people yeah. to go to the food. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense at all. Punching way down. Yes. Punching as down as you can punch. Exactly. He's so fr- Because I always took it like, it's the frustration that life is unkind yeah. that makes you go, what are we going to do? I don't know, go to the fucking food. Yeah, yeah, uh, right. But it doesn't make any sense at all. That, that way he captures that whole thing with where it's like, you know, you're sitting there eating what you pulled together. Like he, he phrased it like he was just sitting in front of the television set with some shitty dinner that he pulled together for himself and there's a starving guy on tv a starving kid yeah. and it just just infuriated him <laughs> and isn't that just a cover for an inability to feel sadness that you do feel so sad that you just start screaming nonsense because you can't go to that vulnerable place right, that, that just wants to cry about that kid yeah you, you're broke your heart broken now it's exploding Yes. <laughs> All over everybody. Unless we're just totally wrong and he was just a, a monster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was definitely there was some of that. But but okay, but like what I was saying though, like I was impressed and I, I entered the uh the, the, the Apatow return, you know, seeing you around as you know, like I was uh, not that I needed to defend you, but I'm like, wait, people were surprised. I'm yes. like, he was writing jokes for some of our favorite comics when he was a child. <laughs> what you, like, you're gonna, what you think he's gonna have a hard time putting together an act? <laughs> you know, I mean, did you ever, did you think, I mean, as a joke writer, and you drew from your life, you know, very frankly, that you were gonna have a hard time putting together an act? It, it, I think what it is is that I didn't think about it too much. I just slowly slid into it. Yeah. I think what helped me a lot in doing it again. Yeah. One was I didn't need to do it to pay my rent. Right. And I didn't need to beg for spots. So I was very lucky that I had enough recognition that clubs yeah. would put, put me up as a freak show anyway. At least but, in no, the beginning. You're not like Steve-O. I mean, you're Judd Apatow. You're like... <laughs> but just, there was something amusing about seeing me right. attempt to do it. Yeah. The other thing that helped me a lot is I didn't know who any of the comics were. So when I started going up at the cellar, yeah. I didn't know almost anybody. So I didn't have the fear of everybody because at the time I didn't understand how much better they were than me. Or yeah, where they stood in the hierarchy. Yes. Like, you know. I didn't know like, oh, that's how funny, you know, Keith Robinson is. Oh, yeah. And I should, you know, yeah. I should be nervous around him sure. because he yeah. kills yeah. every single night. Yeah. And all those guys, you know, Greer Barnes and- Wow, you know, Greer Barnes. <laughs> you know, all these people were like, were so funny. And then yeah. I would slowly watch them. But at the very beginning, I just hadn't watched comedy in a long time. So when I would go in and I would sit at the table with all the comics i didn't even know their acts to right. know who i was sitting with sure. most of the time right and then by the time i figured out who everyone was i had enough of my sea legs to not be too embarrassed but i was embarrassed like though this is kind of weird that i'm uh attempting to do it but i always felt like everyone realized that i love it so much but you but you were this is but you were a comic yes I mean, that's the weird thing is like, I would have thought that, you know, sitting down with them that, that, that you would have thought that they were projecting like, what does this guy need to do this for? 
Why is he here? I didn't. I didn't get that from people. Yeah. The, well, then I hit it well. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> oh yeah. But you know what? Maybe that was what people were thinking. Just, just what is happening right now? Every once in a while, I would see someone get quiet. You know, I'd sit at the comedian's table. Just someone very chatty would just stop talking. <laughs> And I thought, God, I hope my presence here isn't making people self-conscious. But then slowly. You don't want them walking. You're going home at 2.30 going like, I fucked up with appetite. (laughs) Which is so not why I'm there at all. (laughs) Uh, But but everyone was so nice. I really fell in love with everyone there. And, you know, Esty uh, and Gnome, they just were very inviting. The club was excited to have me uh, work there. And then. I worked my ass off. I wrote, you know, a you ton did. of jokes to try to, I tried to be worthy of it. I really respected all the, the comedians and thought, I got to get good enough that I could, yeah. I could think I'm as, I'm, you know, I'm on the same level of these people. Like I was watching the special and you were just, it was all loaded up with like little one line pieces that I never heard before. And di- I didn't get it all the way to the end. Did you do the Cosby bit? I do. Yeah. Near the end. Like, like yes. that, that, I love that bit. And I love the, uh, the all the kids stuff. I mean, and, and to sort of admit like and and you sort of had to because you weren't going to go up and and just do you know detached jokes. Yes. But you do you, you know you present your life as it is. Yes. You know I am a rich producer of film and television. <laughs> I live a very a very you know uh, gilded life. Is that the word? Yes. Uh, but you know the you know, problems remain. Well, that is the one thing that you notice, and I'm sure from your new uh, perch and your new home, you will notice as well that uh, that once you can pay your bills, yeah. Uh, and I always say this that you know people who have succeeded at what they've tried to do and who have a little money, they they spend their whole lives thinking when I, when this happens, then yeah. happiness will arrive, and then when it happens, you realize, oh, I'm still unhappy. It's me. Well, it's yeah, all me. but yeah, but I don't know that I ever thought that happiness would arri- arrive. And but I do feel there's some things I don't have to worry about, like yes. I used to. That used to consume me. Yes, but I mean, but when you really think about how is that going to change you to have? But I, I don't know. You know, I, I'm, I, you know, I, I am getting a new house, and I walk around it, and I'm like, it, it feels different. Like, but you know, I'm 54. Yeah. You, you know, <laughs> you know, like, I, you know, I better do something to 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 feel like that I've I've arrived somewhere. It's hard to think that. Uh, you deserve it, you know that. Right. That you've worked a long time, and I'm allowed to have the room, you know, with the big TV. Yeah. And I'm going to work hard on the sound. Yeah. <laughs> like, but you do think I don't deserve this? You, there is that, you know. Fraud. Why is that? I, get, well, I don't fucking know why that is. I mean, I I, I feel that a little bit, but I, I I guess for me, it's more like you know, like do I need it? It's not. It's not yeah. even. <laughs> It's, exactly. It's not like deserve. It's sort of like, you know, I'm okay here, but this house is falling the fuck apart and I've not even yeah. fixed anything. And like when I empty it, I, I, it's going to be like they should just demo it. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, there's a point of pride in not being an asshole in the nice house. Yeah. And that's a that's a, a difficult thing. I I don't think I use much of it in in the special, but I do talk a, a lot about People who always want more, like if you're the Koch brothers and you have $35 billion and you are obsessed with getting all of these congressmen to push for a tax cut so you could make $2 billion more of which you'll never spend a penny, what is going on in your mind? What are your values? At the cost of people's lives? Yes. Quality of life, the <laughs> yes. country, the yes. globe, at food the stamps. Could we get could we get rid of food stamps so yeah. I can get a, a tax cut? And 
and I think that is what's driving all of us mad is that Trump is a symbolic of very wealthy people and it's not enough. Yeah. And as someone who you know, doesn't have to feel terrible if I get a parking ticket, I don't get it at all because other than sending my kids to school and having a place to live, there's nothing to spend money on. Right. All you really spend money on generally is you might go on a vacation yeah. and you might get the extra appetizer. <laughs> And that's about it. Like, why do you need, like, why does Trump need to say I'm worth 10 billion? If he was worth 900 million, it's, yeah. what, what, what the fuck is the difference? Well, he he also has mental problems and he needs yes. to win and he's a bully and there's, yeah. And, and and he seems to be at the beginning stages of some degenerative mental condition. Do you think that's it? People are beginning to say that openly, like something's happening. Well, apparently his father had it and his sister yeah. is, it has it now. Uh, is completely incapacitated with uh, degenerative mental you know, illness. Reagan, uh, you know, ran the country for several several, several years. years. Yeah, just push him out there. Remember Thanks. those Iran uh, Contra uh, uh, interviews he did? Uh-uh. He he had to do a deposition. Yeah, not good. It wasn't it wasn't the best shining <laughs> moment on the hill. Well, uh, so the special looked good. You well, you did. How many did you shoot? Nine. <laughs> I shot two shows a night for two nights. Okay. Uh, I, I shot four shows. Yeah. The night before the first show in the same theater, I did a warm-up show to get used to this space. So you did five. Uh, yeah. And I, I didn't tape that one. And it went so badly. Okay. And, <laughs> Good. And people told me that would happen. But when it happens, when you run the full set. And, it's, and, and, it's, and you just can't get over the you, hump? You, you can't. It, it felt like every joke was starting over. Yeah, it was the worst. And some jokes would work, but every joke. And it, it was like. Canadian people yeah. who were so polite yeah. that they just their energy never lifted. But no, but I thought the thing it looked great. Who directed it? Um, it was uh, Marcus Ramboy. Is he one of your guys? Uh, he is just a great uh, comedy director who who did Pete Holmes special and he does a lot of them. And I thought I don't know how to do this. And and he did a a, a beautiful. Yeah, job the with suit it. was nice. Uh, the suit was nice. Who's, who's, um, who makes that suit? I, I don't know, but professionals were involved. <laughs> it's my punch punch drunk glove. It's a punch drunk glove yeah. suit. No, but you look good in a suit. Like I could yeah. never. Like I don't think I could pull a suit off. I think my head's too large. I don't know. I haven't worn a suit in a long time. I look okay in a suit. I look a little bit like an agent, but my body mm. is so wrongly shaped. It's just I'm very. I'm, you know, I, I get a little pear shaped. Uh-huh. So I decided a few years ago. Uh, and my wife is not thrilled about this. Yeah, that the only shirt I looked good in was a black James Purse polo shirt. I bought twenty five of them. Oh, I see you in that a lot. Yeah, and, and I just decided I'm not even going to pretend I look good in other clothes. <laughs> you did wear that a lot. And then I lost some weight so I'd look okay. Yeah, for the for the special. And then right. the second we were done taping, just, just put another ten back on. Did you? Yeah, just start eating again. And it, yeah, I just toss it all out the window. I've been. I got my cholesterol down without, without statins. By there's a big fight in my house. Is my wife is against the statins? I know. I I I got against them too because I don't I don't know really why. But you yeah. know, one wants to be on medicine. But uh, I just cut meat and dairy out totally. That's what people say. It's all the meat. <laughs> yeah. That, that people think it's everything else, but that the your cholesterol is very meat driven. I hate any discussion of having to be healthy. 
Yeah. I don't like that I have to do it. Well, now it's like there's less reason because it doesn't seem like things are going <laughs> to go well. There's not a positive yes. closure ahead. So you might as well live a little. <laughs> Sometimes when, when like I'm watching the news and, and, yeah. they, and they say, hey, Trump decided to put all the dukes on B1 bombers to like be up in the air 24 hours a day. Yeah. I will eat that pint of ice cream. Sure. And I'm kind of happy that the window got smaller. Yeah. No, not- <laughs> I, 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 you know, I wish I, I think that, you know, sadly, it's true. Like, you know, like it is, I, right? I, when, when old people like who I respect die, I'm like, they got out. <laughs> they got out. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. Um, thank God they didn't have to see this shit. You know, after yeah. what they lived through. Yes. Like, let them go now. As I get older and I feel closer to death, mm-hmm. I, I get a, a, like a feeling like where I'm excited to die. Yeah. To just get out before like the environment falls apart, before some other bad thing happens. I don't happens. know if we're going to make it, dude. I, I it might have we might be a, a, around for it. God damn it! I know what the <laughs> fuck we really thought was. I thought I was going to get out before the world ended, but it, I don't know. It used to be, you know, when I was a kid, I would yeah. think they're going to cure cancer yeah. before I get it. Yeah. And now I'm like, they're not going to. But <laughs> They've done real good with some of them. Really depends yeah. which one you get. And I can't slip out mm-hmm. before the really bad stuff happens. Yeah. It becomes harder to create silly comedy in the face of this. It becomes harder to do anything. Yeah. That, 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 that is pleasurable or not. Uh, or not requiring because there's part of the thing so like we're in an urgent situation yes. and i should be doing something urgently but you run out of there the, what what so then yeah. like with that kind of percolating and the news percolating when you just want to go like watch a movie or enjoy something or play some guitar it's there's part of you that's sort of like why why do this even exactly why not just sit <laughs> like i remember you know being home yeah and uh you know kicking you know, jokes around with uh, Seth and Evan for Pineapple Express. Yeah. Like, oh, it'd be funny if he tries to kick out the windshield of the car <laughs> yeah. and it, his foot just gets stuck. And then we would, <laughs> yeah. you know, you know, when they like pitched it, we would just giggle for 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know if that kind of moment is possible right now where I you're bu- so lost in the silly uh, fantasy land. I, and I was talking to a, 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 someone about this for hours last night that... As a Jew, yeah. I feel like we're supposed to pay attention right now. And yeah. I'm, not, I'm not even religious, but I have a feeling of like my whole life I thought, why didn't they do something about all this, you know, during World War II? Yeah. And it feels like if I shut it all off and write silly jokes, I'm abdicating some responsibility. And then my, my friend was saying, no, the way you change the world is through your art and that teaches people about love and connection and compassion and everything you do to protest everything that's going on doesn't matter at all or anywhere near as much as the messages you slyly send through your comedy or your movies and how that sit with you you know you know what i think of i just think of trains of jews going into camps (laughs) and i just think aren't i supposed to be like on the on the train tracks stopping it yeah and i think that's is that just a a nice notion that I'll write a movie now that comes out in three and a half years? But how did that help people in Puerto Rico who have no water? Right, and aren't we supposed to? Well, what? Yeah, but like, what? But what? What? See, the thing is, is like, would you be able to do the type of grunt work necessary to get your hands dirty and and help out in a practical way, in an immediate yeah. way? Well, the yeah, me- yeah. immediate way I do it is I just try to raise money. Good. I, so I do, you know, I do an enormous amount of 
benefits. Oh, what and, is the uh, the uh, ACLU thing? I, I they I got an invitation. Should I go? Uh, yeah, I'm going to get uh, some sort of a recognition from the ACLU. As soon as the Trump thing hit, I said, I got to figure out what to do so I don't go crazy. One of the main things is I'm going to raise money for the ACLU. Yeah. Because so much of what slows I immediately Trump down. Sent them num- I immediately sent them money. Yeah. Just, like you need lawyers. And, and a lot of what has stopped yeah. uh, the terrible things he's done, uh, the transgender ban in the military or, uh, yeah. or travel bans, is because the ACLU is suing them. Right. So, and then I think, well, I still get to do comedy. Yeah. I could strong arm friends into doing yeah. shows and at least it's doing something. So that's one thing I try to do. Well, I think that's true. I think that's right. Because yeah. like, I think that, you know, on the other side where people are just thrilled at, you know, I, I realize that what's happened because of a tone of an email I got is that, that these people that had the, that hated Obama, that hated uh, progressive, uh, culturally progressive m- movements in, on, in all areas, just became, they were enraged and then they became exhausted by have, being forced to tolerate things. Yeah. And then, then, then once they didn't have to anymore, the fury just came out, the fury yeah. of intolerance. So now their condescending position is like, well, now you guys have to tolerate, you know, <laughs> This this horrendous intolerance and hostility and racism and hate we had to put up with with you guys with making, love yeah, with love and, and open hearted <laughs> shit open minded garbage now that you know so so like for me like I, I think what we have to do as a service to ourselves but also to the country is not fall into despair yeah. and let that become like just like it's, it's i think that authoritarian regimes you know feed on on hopelessness despair and and the reality that people are are not really able to do anything about it yeah. and and we're so confused that how much we're lied to you know for instance uh people already have forgotten about the vegas shooting yeah. We're five insane things past that already. And that was just weeks ago. Yeah. yeah everything, like, there's something about, there's an old Hicks joke. You remember the joke he did? I can't, I was just paraphrasing it about watching the TV. It's like death, destruction, war, <laughs> right? And then, you know, you open the door, it's like crickets. Like there, there's <laughs> yeah. some profound idea about, you know, what you allow into your head, what you allow it to do and what your reality is and what you can do. So the the question becomes, can I stay positive can I think of constructive things to do while, you know, putting up my resistance and writing boner jokes? Yeah. Simultaneously. Sure. No, the boner jokes are important because if there's no humor, then there's just the hopelessness. And and yes. then, you know, but yeah. But let's talk about, before we go, like I watched the rough cut of the Gary Shanling doc and uh, it's a beautiful, right. a beautiful thing. You're one of the few people who've seen it. Yeah, it was very touching. I loved it. And like I said to you, and I think I've told you before, and you knew him well, and you put this stuff together from archive footage, from his notebooks, from all the things you had access to in his life. And it's a, you know, it's a beautiful kind of uh, memorial of a friend and a mentor. But like that, that uh, memorial ser- uh, service that I went to, the show, what would you call that? A memorial? Uh, yeah, we did a memorial for Gary at the Wilshire Ebell, right. and a lot of people spoke, and, and I cut together 
little documentary uh, sequences about different parts of but, Gary's life. But just learning about him changed my life because I talked to him and I don't know that I re- appreciated his comedy with the depth necessary, with the depth that was uh, that was there, that it deserved, mm-hmm. and, and also his process. And, you know, you turning me on to him and then having me go to that thing and then we did the 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 green room together and i got to you know sort of i always liked him but i never knew on some weird level how much i had in common with him yeah i think that emotionally i think that's what most people uh are realizing is that they didn't know him as well as they wished they did yeah although people don't people don't really have the courage to dig you know if, if like you're in a unique position because you do get the moment with someone where you're allowed to ask the questions people will not ask in conversation. Yeah, sometimes I can do it. Yeah, so every yeah. once in a while you could just you know turn to someone like Gary Shandling and go, why are you like this? Yeah. And, and get answers. But in life, even as his close friend, yeah. uh, I, I wouldn't often <laughs> dig for the psychological underpinnings of who he was. But when I made the documentary and I started figuring out how he became this guy and what he was doing and what he was attempting throughout his life to be sane and to find happiness and peace, um, it, I, I realized that it was it's very powerful. I, I related to it as well. And it's sad that people didn't get to share that with him as much as they could have while he was alive because he had a very interesting journey, which is the same as us, which is we're young we we have some difficult childhood situation. Yeah, comedy becomes some way to escape, a way to be seen. Then we want to be successful so that we feel good about ourselves. So that at some point we realize, oh, that doesn't work. Yeah, what what does work, which ultimately is love and connection and some higher purpose. And then we go for that, which is still difficult and uh, you know very hard to attain. And then we. And we get killed in that North Korea bomb. <laughs> no. <laughs> right as we're about to feel that peace. Yeah, finally. But, <laughs> but Gary uh, had a fascinating you know, story. I mean, the one that I love is that when he's 20 years old, he went to a comedy, uh, not a comedy club, just a, a, a like a bar club. Yeah. And saw George Carlin. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. And George Carlin is, you know, he's pretty new to being hippie George Carlin. Yeah. Gary writes bits for him. Yeah. I found the bits. He wrote yeah. a fake commercial for legalized marijuana. Right. So he wrote, he literally wrote the bit. What if they legalize marijuana? What would the commercial be? And so he had about five pages of bits for Carlin. He walks up to him and says, hey, I, I, I wrote you some jokes. Ballsy for 20. Yeah. And Carlin says, I don't usually buy jokes, but I'll read them if you want to come back tomorrow. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I thought. Gary comes back the next day. They're laid out on the table with, like, he wrote on them. He made notations. And he says to young Gary, you know what? I don't buy jokes, but there's one great joke on every page. And I think if you you want to pursue this, you should. And Gary got in the car and just moved to California. <laughs> and it changed his life. Yeah, yeah. He, he needed that. And, you know, who wouldn't? Who knows if Carlin would have done that on any other day? Because you yeah. know what that's like, right? You, you know, who is this kid? It's yes. a mood thing. Yeah. Like, I, you know, like who? I don't know Carlin yeah. for, you know, how often he did that, but he was probably in, in Arizona. What did he have to do? Yes. Right? 
Like, you, you know what I mean? And this little ballsy Jewish kid is like, I got these jokes. And he's like, I got nothing to do tomorrow. I'm right? going to read these jokes instead of going to the mall. Right. Yeah, something. Yeah. And it, it erupt, but I think Carlin used to do that. I heard his, his daughter, Kelly Carlin, on yeah. the show. And she said he would bump into a comic. He would ask the comic for his number. And then eight months later, he would just call the guy and go, how are you doing? How's the career going? Yeah. And he would follow up in a, in a really beautiful way with people. He, he knew the that power that he had. And then I found this letter, and this isn't in the documentary, where 10 years later or seven years later, Gary's doing like, make me laugh. You know, yeah. He's just beginning to get spots at the comedy store. And he writes a letter to Carlin thanking him for telling him to be a comedian. And he says, more important than your comedy is the man you are and how he he wants to be a man like George Carlin. Right. Who, who uh, you know, speaks his truth. And uh, and it's it's wild. And I don't know if he sent it because I found it. It looked, right. it looked like the unsent right. thank you letter. Wow. And it, it, but it was beautiful. Uh, it really, uh, and he was like, I wrote an episode of Welcome Back, Cotter. <laughs> <laughs> like that was going to impress George Carlin. <laughs> Maybe that's why the second thoughts came in. Yes. I'm not going to send this. But that's going to be on in March. Great. And it's four hours. And I thought, you know what? If OJ's worth seven, yeah. Gary's got to be worth four. All right, buddy. Well, the special is great. It's called The Return. December 12th on uh, yeah, so Netflix. This, this is going to be, uh, this isn't going to go up for a while because we're going to hold it until we, we for to promote the thing. Yes. So like, who knows? The world, what the fuck? The world could be so different in the when this runs in three or four weeks. Ivanka could be in prison by then. Who who knows what? The, that's <laughs> that's upbeat. That's an optimistic. <laughs> that's the best case future. scenario. <laughs> okay, again. Judd Apatow, The Return, premieres tomorrow, December 12th on Netflix, and it's good. He's been a latent stand-up comic for a decade or so. It's good to have him out, have him back. I did stand-up the other night at the comedy store, and um, I was third up in the original room, 1045 spot, second show, and I got on stage and I'd just been free-forming, doing the riffage, trying to find the beats, trying to find the, 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 the path. Where is this going to go? What's this idea? How does it work? Does it have legs? But I've just been kind of having fun, riffing, trying not to freak out or freaking out in a funny way. And I get on stage and there's a guy front row, stage left, totally asleep, totally asleep. And I'm talking, I'm on the mic, and you can hear it, it's loud, and I'm talking about him being asleep, and I'm asking him if he's awake, if he's if he's enjoying his nap, nothing, he's not waking up. I took a picture of the dude on stage, from the stage, and yeah, obviously I was you know having fun, and then uh, the flash apparently woke him up, and I gotta be honest with you, I felt bad I woke him up. I felt bad, like, I, yeah, it was rude that he was sleeping, but it was one of those moments where I'm like, oh, I should have just let that guy sleep. You know what I mean? I don't know his life. You know, he's in a safe place. He's in a comedy club. He came for a few laughs. Maybe he hasn't slept in days and he was hoping that the comedy would make him feel better. And he just finally got a little shut eye. Uh, he did, I think, uh, uh, end up going back to sleep. So Loudon Wainwright is a very prolific folk singer. 
And his memoir, Liner Notes, came out in the fall and is available wherever you get books. So this is me and Loudon chatting. You do the boats? I have a sailboat. So you know how to sail? I know how to sail, yeah. I mean, I, I, start, I started when I was 55, so I kind of know how to sail. I've been doing it for 15 years. Oh, it wasn't something you grew up with? No. God, it's like, uh, I got a friend who sailed around the world. Are you that proficient? No. No, I, I, once, <laughs> I, once, I once did a long sail for yeah. five days, and that cured me of that. So you can sweep in the boat? I have a, there is a place to sleep on the boat. I, I've never slept there. I had sex there once, but oh, we good. actually didn't sleep. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> was that, were you moving? Were you out on the water? Or <laughs> no. just, was it just docked? The anchor was dropped, as they say. <laughs> yeah. We were anchored. Yeah. Well, well that was good. It was, a, was that a, something that you needed to get out of your system? Or is that like, <laughs> like, let's fuck on a boat. It's time to fuck on a boat. I haven't done that. Let's do that. I don't know how much time I got left. Well, you know, you have a boat and there's a place to lie down. Sure. It's actually a... a a toilet, a head, they call it. Yeah, and I've I, I I've used that, but uh, I said, well, so we said we should at least have sex on the boat. This is what your wife. This is my my other my better much better half. Yeah, uh, my girlfriend. Oh, there's a girlfriend. Yeah, I got a girlfriend. The girlfriend is is this the mother of the latest the last child? No, no, this is somebody new. That was a new one. This is somebody who works at the New Yorker. In fact, I listened to your. Your show with David Remnick, which oh, yeah. I greatly enjoyed. But this oh, yeah. is Susan Morrison, okay, who's a who's a big editor at the New York. Oh, that's great. So yeah. that's nice. So you, you have someone to t- have talk, sex with on a boat, have sex on a boat with, and have high minded conversations <laughs> yeah. about things. Well, uh, yeah, so tonight you you flew in today. You're gonna you're gonna go do a thing with Christopher Guest tonight, mm-hmm. and you guys know each other a long time, about forty five years. Yeah, where did that start? Where did how did you like uh, you know like I, I've talked to McKean, you know, do you, and you're friends with him too. I went to college with McKean, so that's how I met Chris, actually. And David and Landers too. David Lander, Carnegie Tech in Pittsburgh Acting School. I was, just, so we're all studying to be actors. Oh, really? Yeah. And then Mike, and then uh, uh, Michael and David got kicked out, and and Michael went to NYU, and that's where he met Chris in the acting program. Uh huh. So when I came to New York, I, I met uh, Chris through Michael. Oh, so they were like youngsters. Like, they yeah. they met in college. That whole thing started in college. Yeah, them. like what what years are we talking there? Like that would be what sixty seven. Yeah, so you weren't pl- you were playing a bit, or you weren't playing. I was beginning to play. I was I was I had a, I had played guitar, and by, I was beginning to I began to write in, in sixty eight. Uh huh. So you, the original idea was to be an actor. That was the the original plan. Well, that's right. Because in the book, you talk about that feeling, <laughs> that feeling of. Of making people laugh on stage and just sort of like this is where this is it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was really you. You just knew you wanted to be on stage, connecting. It, it started when I was in Santa Ana. Uh, when I was about seven, I sang a song a cappella for my mother and her twin sister, uh, uh, <laughs> and these two beautiful. They were, you know, twenty-seven or whatever they were, beaming down this love and approval yeah. on me, and that. That uh, that clinched the deal for me. I knew that I did it. I, I I pretty that's you know I'd wanted to be a cowboy and an astronaut, but then I wanted to be a performer after they. But yeah, so like so as your, uh, your yeah your mom had twin sisters. So where did you? Let's, I guess we should go all the way back because it's sort of interesting to me because you grew up in these kind of like two worlds in terms of who your parents were. Yes, because uh, you have a very kind of like there's a a fairly 
uh, high, uh, you know, falutin, high falutin, <laughs> you know, Name. powerful bloodline, uh, you know, of America in a way. Yeah. Uh, legacy. Yeah, it's a big name, but your dad comes from a big family, right? From a like an old family. Yeah, the Wainwrights have been around for years, and we're relatives with the Stuyvesants. You know, Peter Stuyvesant, sure. the one-legged governor. Yeah. So my dad grew up as a kind of uh, in the what they call the Gold Coast of Long Island. You know? So the Stuyvesants. So that money or that family connection goes back to like pre-America New York to Dutch New York. Does it go that? Yeah, Peter Stuyvesant was the first governor of New Amsterdam. Uh huh. Right. So, right. Okay. So way back, way back. Yeah, they had those uh, like that. I n- I never understand how that money stays around. Do you? I don't know anything about money. I- I'm really. I know you're a bad. musician, I'm a but mus- is it? But you grew up, y- you know, in that world, right? Westchester, like, New York. You know, in the in the country clubs, mansions. Still, yeah. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. We were the members of the. We were members of the Bedford Golf and Tennis Club. Uh huh. And uh, but my dad met my mo- my mother was from the opposite end of the social scale. She yeah. was this funky white trash chick from Tifton, Georgia. Uh huh. You know, real really dirt poor. Her dad was an itinerant uh, tobacco farmer. Uh huh. And she had the she talked like that, loudy. Yeah, loudy. <laughs> That's so beautiful, loudy. Sing that again. That's yeah. sweet. I'm glad you had that though. Yeah. No, she was my biggest supporter. You yeah. Know, when I was being in trying to start out singing and playing and stuff well there's a, like there's a lot of kids though there's what four of you or three of you? i have i have four and a half siblings I, my dad had a had a daughter late in his life God, uh, you guys are you know just on you on the same uh life plan just just go out there and <laughs> fool around and see what happens <laughs> that's it yeah yeah so you, how old is that one that is anna and anna is th- 33 that's your half sister. That's my half sister, Anna. That's wild, huh? Yeah, yeah. When did you start? Like, you know, what? Because, like, I listen to a lot of the music, and you know, you write very well, and in, in 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 the book, and and there's something about, and he seemed like a pleasant man. <laughs> it's early. <laughs> I had a nap. <laughs> but I mean, there's something about, like, because I do comedy, and I do very, uh, you know, personal comedy. Uh-huh. And and it seems that you are sort of compelled to be as personal as possible as well. Yes. And it seems that you you know in my own life, and I imagine in yours that you know there's a price to pay for that. Some rough Thanksgiving dinners with the family. <laughs> <laughs> but when how does that when, we can evolve into that? But when did you start you know writing songs, and what was what 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 drove you initially? Well, I, first I learned how to play the guitar, and uh, when I, you know, I had a guitar when I was thirteen, and I never thought I'd write songs. My dad was a writer, and writing, you know, observing him be a writer. But he just, was like a journalist. He was right? a journalist. He was a famous journalist. He had a column in Life magazine for, for years, and he was very well known in the '60s when I was growing so up. So I guess that some, you know, you had to look up to that. You knew that your dad was famous, right? I, yeah, I like looked up to it, but I also looked askance at it because I, a, I didn't want to be like him, like most snotty-nosed kids. You don't want to be like your parents. Uh-huh. And second of all, he he seemed to be an unhappy person trying to write and meet deadlines and write books. But was he un, unhappy in general, <laughs> or or? Uh, he was unhappy in general. Yeah, he had a he had a hard ass father, Loudon Wainwright the first. Yeah, 
who who died when 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 my dad was only seventeen, uh-huh. and he never got to you know work any of their stuff out. So I, hard, I think he was a uh, hard ass how. Well, I never met him, but you know, get your elbows off the table and just a disciplinarian mm-hmm. and and you know, not emotional, not not yeah, cold, other than angry, cold, <laughs> angry cold. or cold. I've seen pictures of him, and yeah. I, uh, in fact, there's a picture of him in the book. You can see that he's. He's holding it in and not letting it. Well, what, what what I thought was interesting in the book is that in in the parts I read was that you know, and I tried to track this in my own life is that you know you have enough self awareness, you've done enough research on yourself, and and there is a to to the degree that you have, but there's this legacy, you know, there are these generations of either emotional detachment or coldness that you know you're 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 up against whether it's conditioned or genetic. Mm-hmm. That you're propelled by these things. Yeah, you're, the deck is stacked genetically. It, it, or, yeah, or way, yeah. However, it's a, it go- it, the beat goes on. You know, there is a legacy of, of, uh, of, of d- depression and self-loathing. But and, your dad seemed like your dad was was not. I mean, it seemed like you had a relationship with him. We, um, you know, it, we it kind of toward the end of his life, he died. Uh, he was only sixty-three when he died. Yeah. So uh, we uh, we kind of got a little closer toward the end, particularly after he got sick. Yeah. Uh, and in 1982, which was five years or six years before he died, he and I took a trip to Australia together. I was playing there, and they threw in an extra plane ticket. My dad came with me. We were both guys then. We yeah. both had broken families and were in new relationships. Yeah. His, Anna had just been born, so he was a new dad. He was a 59-year-old new dad. That's wild, though. That must have been a bizarre. Yeah. So you're you're on a level playing field almost. Yeah. We, we really had probably the best time we ever had uh-huh. then. Yeah. You know, kind of toward the end. Yeah. Because you do talk about a moment in the book where you, you finally give it to him a little bit. I gave it to him at the very end when he was in the hospital actually yeah. dying and he you know so he's hooked up to tubes and bags and you know and and I've always had this thing where you know my name is Loudon Wainwright the 3rd which yeah. is a kind of a pretentious it, it's my actual name <laughs> yeah but, but so he said when my career started he said well you should you should use the 3rd because we don't want to have any confusion about which Loudon is which right so I agreed to that. Yeah. But then I realized soon after that yeah. that he didn't use junior. Yeah. So I said, and I then I waited 20 years, but yeah. finally he's dying. <laughs> I said, you know, Dad, I just got to say something. This The Roman numeral thing, and the, you did not use the junior thing. So you were just playing old Loudon Wainwright. Yeah. And then he said, you can have the name when I'm dead, <laughs> which shut me up pretty good. <laughs> Is that poetry? See yeah. the poetry that goes right through it too. Yeah. So, what were your choices? Like, I, I, I you know, you chose to be a musician, and you you went to these private schools, which must have been a nightmare. But uh, when did you choose? Like, how was the the culture changing that made you want to do it? Well, I went to Carnegie, which is where I met McKean. And, but, that, but it must have happened before, right? Well, the, the playing was, but I didn't think I was going to be an actual musician, although I played in folk bands in boarding school and thing. But but I, I dropped out of college. I was a hippie in San Francisco for about two years. I got busted in uh, 67 for in Oklahoma. You were a hippie in, like the late, in which years? 
I was there in the summer of love. Donald so Fagan and I lived in a crash pad and, along with some other people. Did you meet him in San Francisco? Yeah. Fagan? That's where I met him. I had met him earlier. My, my girlfriend at that time had friends at Bard. So yeah. he was at Bard, and that, that summer they went out to. It's so weird. Like, like I know that he's like a great musician and a funny guy and a cynical writer, but I never locked into the Steely Dan thing. Really? Well, I mean, I can listen to it. I know the good songs. Uh-huh. You know, but like in terms of like complete nerding out, which it seems like they're a band where there's just people who are full on yeah. Steely Dan nerds. I am a I am a huge Steely Dan. Sure. Fan. In fact, once I asked Donald because I I kind of know him and I yeah. know his wife, Libby Titus, and I I I asked him if he would, would produce one of my records for me. Yeah. He said no. no. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of it kind of crushed me. So, but uh, I'm a huge fan. I love those records. But yeah, I, I know that a lot of people don't. You know. I, I'm 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 coming around. I know that I know the ones I grew up with. It's very like, controlled. Yes. Maybe that's the problem. Yeah, I, I do like things it's nailed. Messy. It's nailed down. Yeah, it's almost it's it's almost like uh, sterilized. I, I don't know. I find the. The, the great stuff and there's a lot of it the yeah. songs are very sad I mean the writing and his as a vocalist I think Fagan is w one of the great singers no I, I, I agree I agree so you guys you kept in touch a little bit a bit we see each other every every once in a while yeah I, I don't I forgive him for not wanting to produce my record well you got Richard Thompson to do it that's not nothing that's right alright so the summer of love like what was that like were you a, a, a acid guy drug guy acid oh yeah yeah the good Get, stuff Owsley yeah, it was pretty. It, we would drop acid in the morning and then just kind of wander around Golden Gate Park, ah. talk to the the bison at the Buffalo Pen there. And, yeah, and uh, you know, saw so, saw so free concerts with the Grateful Dead and the Big Brother and the whole. Did you hang out with those guys at all? I no, because I was just a lowly. You know, you weren't even a guy. No, yet. I wasn't a guy yet. Yeah. You know, uh, you're just one of the the the, the hippie yeah, uh, masses. Yeah, I was. I was. <laughs> you know, I would go to the Haight Ashbury Free Clinic to get broken glass taken out of my foot. I mean, oh, I was one of those right. guys. Yeah, because you're yeah. walking around sure on drugs sure. with no shoes. <laughs> a great idea in a major city. But you were a kid, right? I mean, how old were you? Well, sixty-seven. Uh, I was. I, yeah, I wasn't a total kid. I was twenty-one. But that, but you know, like I, I guess when I talk to guys who you know come uh, of age as musicians at that time, I mean, you were there with this like cataclysmic shift, two or three of them really in music, right? Mm -hmm. So I mean, you grew up and it was the end of you know what would have been sort of big bandy, I would imagine, when you were a kid, and then rock and roll starts and happens, right? I and saw. then and then all of a sudden it just completely shifts. In the late 60s, mm -hmm. into folk and then whatever, you know, acid yeah. and speed yeah. <laughs> yielded. Right. Whatever the drugs that were being taken. Right. But right. the Beatles, like, I mean, you were like, uh, a, a, like a very impressionable person when that shit went down. Yeah. No, I loved all the, you know, the Beatles and the Stones and, of course, Dylan. I mean, when I, and when I started to play the guitar and, and, and sing, the folk boom was happening. Yeah. It didn't last very long, but... It for, didn't, though. It didn't really, did it? It lasted about two years. Yeah. And the Newport Folk Festival was the grooviest thing, but then electric music, when, when Bob plugged in... Right. ...reasserted its power... <laughs> but but that that is, is that how you look at it? Like it's like you know we had a good thing going, and then you know you had to bring electricity into it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it left a lot of a lot a lot of folkies in the dust. I mean, I, I loved when Dylan went electric. I yeah, it was very powerful and exciting and great. 
Like, because like I read Dylan's book, you know, the the strange autobiography, the Chronicles. Yeah, which was great. Like, I think some of the best stuff in it was his, you know, depiction of that scene. Mm-hmm. So, like, after, so I'm assuming you go, you you went to San Francisco, did your acid, right? And uh, did you run away, or did you <laughs> from San Francisco? Or well, I was arrested in Oklahoma on my way back. Uh, uh, yeah, and for then, what? For possession of uh, marijuana <laughs> yeah and um and then i started to uh write songs yeah and uh but and with an acoustic guitar with not with an electric guitar right so and then i went and sang in these little hoots and open mic things in cambridge and in new york but did you have to do jail time i was in jail for five days for five days and nights just for weed yeah, but they were they were they were very excited because they found out that my dad was the famous Life wow. magazine writer. So they were talking about ten years. Oh, in so o- they, in Oklahoma City, yeah. But they wanted to they because of that. I thought they were going to give you a break. I thought you wasn't. No, and then my dad he, he was living in London then, and he had to so he had to take two long airplanes, you know, one to New York and then yeah. one down to Oklahoma City. And he got a lawyer, and he has he knew a judge in New York, and basically he used his influence and money to get my ass out of jail. They really which, and it was about to get jumped on my ass. Yeah, because I was in a tank with with you know it was a it was a county jail in Oklahoma City. Uh huh. At night we would we would sleep uh, with a roommate, but in the day it was you know forty guys milling around. Really? So yeah. it was pretty uh, kind of hard time for five days. It, for for a preppy kid from from northern Westchester, it was <laughs> it scared the hell out of me. I still have nightmares about it. Do you really? Yeah. So the, and so was, I was cute. Yeah, I was really cute. Yeah, I saw I those those 20. album covers, those yeah, early was, album covers. Yeah, yeah was, you're a looker, man. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. You weren't exuding alpha strength. No, they they were going <laughs> to jump on me. So my dad got me out, and then and that kind of straightened me up, and uh-huh. then, then I started into music. So you say you you were doing hoots? Is that what they were called? Hoots, open nights. You know, you'd go and play three songs for a lot of other singer songwriters and some Japanese tourists. But you were going up to Cambridge, and you were in New York. You went back to New York. Back and, and forth. I went back and forth to Cambridge, and and between Cambridge and New so York. So that was the folk scene, Cambridge. That and New was York. the folk scene, and then because I know you talk about seeing Phil von Ronk and those guys, and like was this was this the the heart of it, or were you were. The, the big folk stuff had gone. Right. You know, Dylan had gone electric. So the early Bleecker Street, McDougal Street, you know, Dave Van Ronk. Dave, right, yeah. Um, uh, Phil Oakes, Dylan, Richard Farina. Uh, that was five years before my time. So the remnants of that was going on when I hit the village. In- Who was the remnants? Well, you know, there was still Eric Anderson. I don't know if you know who he he was. He was a good singer-song. Uh-huh. He was a good singer-song. Uh-huh. John Hammond Jr. was I around. love him. Well, John Hammond Jr., uh, I did a lot of shows with him at the Gaslight. So you're, okay, so you're doing that folk thing, and then, you know, how does uh, the second tier, the second wave of the folk thing, and what and what happens? Well, what happens is I'm, I'm opening a show at the Village Gaslight on McDougal Street for John Hammond Jr., Yeah, and a guy called Brian Keating, who was writing for the Village Voice, wrote this ridiculously ecstatic review. Uh-huh. You know, uh, this guy is the next guy. Yeah, you know? and that's what happens with comedians or musicians or actors. You know, they get, they get pounced on if they're good. Yeah, and, it, and when there was one or two papers that meant something, right. and There was I, no other input. And within six months, I had a record deal at Atlantic Records. My struggle was so brief; it was ridiculous. 
I mean, I did not pay any dues. <laughs> but in that song on, uh, I think it's History, the Bob Dylan riff, the Talking Blues structured song. Yeah. Uh, you know, you talk about that there was the, that there was a sort of a, 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 a big rush to sign Dylan types. Yeah, because it, he was out of commission. For one thing, he had had his motorcycle accident. Right. So male singer-songwriters were really, you know, they were signing them left and right. So and, you said that it was you, Prine, Springsteen... Yeah, we we I used to joke that we we should start a, a, a you know a, a new Bob Dylan club. Sure, and meet every year at Bruce's house. And you should and have burgers. He's got a nice house out there. He's got a good house. Yeah, he does. Are yeah. you friends with him? I have never met Bruce Springsteen. I've seen him play a couple of times, but I've never met him. I saw him way at the beginning of his career. You guys are all workers, you know what I mean? I mean, that's that's the wild thing about the life you've led. And as a comic, I know that. That, you know, you go out there with your guitar and you're still out there with your guitar. Yeah. And ultimately, I'm one, I, whatever level you're doing that at, that's what you're doing. Yeah. Right? No, so that's, the, that's the last chapter in my book, the 75 to 90. It's It's about the job of going and playing for 75 to 90 minutes in, in, in most in my case a lot of the time in clubs you know and i've been right. doing it for almost 50 years so all right so you get signed all yeah. you guys are you friends with prine i've talked to him. i am i am friends with prine it's great you guys He's, are like you write very uh, you know, beautiful and clever songs with a little, little bite to them a little humor yeah. a, little, a little jab in the heart were you a, were you a steve goodman fan I, I, you know, I know about Steve. Like, he, you know, I don't like some of this music is is familiar to me from my childhood, and I know about the, you know, the couple of hits. But I, and somebody sent me a lot of that stuff, yeah, and he I know was he, great. And he and Prine were kind of yeah, they were buddies. Yeah, he they, close. from uh, the Chicago scene, right? Right, right. But so you get the record deal, and what was the uh, what was the expectation? Well, uh, they they pretty let, much let me do what I wanted to do. That would be Atlantic Records. Nessie Erdogan signed me. So my first record is I took seven months to make, and it's totally voice and guitar. It's not right. Uh, loud and one. Loud and one is just straight ahead. Just the songs, got great reviews, and nobody bought it. <laughs> so then they came time for the second album, which interestingly mm -hmm. enough was called Album Two. Yeah, good good thought on that. Good yeah. creativity and on the title. That uh, again, there was a harmonica on that, and I did a duet with my wife, my then wife, Kate McGarrigal. But the rest of the record is all voice and guitar, and one song on the piano, and no, and great reviews, and nobody bought that one. Yeah. So Atlantic dropped me. Columbia, Clive Davis signed me, and then I, I these are big guys. So it was Ahmet or the other or his brother? Well, Nessui signed Nessui. me. Right. Okay. Uh, and then Clive signed me to uh, another big guy, Columbia. Yeah. And uh, then I, then the dead skunk thing happened. They put me together with a rock rock band. Why are you laughing? Yeah, I like that way. I like the way you said it. Well, yeah. This, was, was it not meant to be funny? It was a thing. I yeah. mean, you know, it was a thing. It was number one in Little Rock, Arkansas, for six weeks. There you go. Now you found your people, man. Yeah, I, I, I've always imagined Bill and Hillary kind of making out in a Rambler <laughs> station skunk, wagon, the dead, dead skunk, skunk on the radio. <laughs> yeah, but that was a, a freak thing, right? Well, it was, was it? freaking that it's been my only hit so far. <laughs> uh huh. No, it was a big, big record, and and the but then that problem was that then I was the skunk guy. So where's the next funny animal song? So then you have the problem of. But was there pressure? Yeah, there was, and I and I from Clive in the in the brass. It, yeah, but then then the next thing I did was I made a record with Bob Johnston, you know, who produced. Blonde on Blonde and Leonard Cohen's records and all the some of the great Dylan records in oh, yeah. Nashville. 
we made a record in four days with all those guys, and but it didn't have a funny animal song on it. But that, but, but that's sort of like, wasn't there a certain amount of like, because you're writing, you, you know, I mean, you're 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 doing, you know, real, you know, kind of soulful folk music, and you're, you're writing, you know, clever songs that, that that tell a certain truth about the human condition, and now you got this skunk song, but you're still like, how did you not get uh, angry and start drinking and? I, I did. Don't don't worry. I did. I started to drink and philander, and my my marriage broke up. And this is the marriage to to Kate. Kate yeah. And that's who that's Rufus's mom that's and Martha's Ruf- mom. Rufus and Martha's mom. I've met them oh. at different points in my life. So there you were. You, you know the skunk song didn't repeat itself, and and now you're you're just a, a guy. Not selling records. Well, I had a career n- not selling records, but th- yeah. but I, I still you know continued to work. And then uh, Clive signed me again to Arista when when he went to Arista. So in '78, I just stopped trying to. I was kind of half-heartedly trying to make what they called radio-friendly records. Yeah, you know, the records that were somewhat produced. Sure. But then I started again and and just started to put out uh, you know voice and guitar records and. I made those records with Richard Thompson, which were kind of stripped down. And yeah. So the the production on the record served the songs, and I think generally I've managed to do that for the last for the last thirty something years. Well, when you look back on it, like you know, I noticed in the book that you talk about like philandering or the road or or what have you is, you know, and that you have done or tried to do, and what that did to your family. I mean, you, I, I I'm just trying to put my finger on it, like because. Like when you do these things in songs, you know, when you do songs, you know, about this kind of stuff, you know, right. about truth, about about hitting your kid, about your relationship with your father or, or fathers in general, about, you know, whatever the darker songs you have, the more touching mm-hmm. songs that, you know, that song is that three or four minutes, you know, but you still have this, you know, a life where you, I imagine, you know, you have a full range of emotions and, mm-hmm. and, and, and you're a decent fella. But but it, it, it's it's just interesting when you're defined by your music, because there I, I don't know wh- whether I read it uh, or or I'm just projecting it. That how close do you feel to the protagonists of your songs in general? Well, I feel I, I wouldn't pretend that it's uh, I feel close. To, it's it's me, you know. It is. It's, it's a kind of crystallized, polished. I mean, although it talks about some of my. Uh, less appealing traits sometimes, yeah, right. but it is me. I've, I, it's been it's it's the it's the waterfront that I've covered. Uh-huh. My life, my family, my kids, my parents, my sister. There's songs about all these people because these are the people that uh, mean a lot to me, and, and quite they're quite particular. And I don't really write generic uh, love songs. I admire people that can do that. Yeah, or even other people that have kind of cryptic things where you're not quite sure what they're writing about right like dylan or even steely dan for that matter. sure you're never quite sure what they're what it's about yeah but my tendency and i don't don't know why because it's just the way that i write everybody develops a style but i write very straight ahead it's very descriptive there's a beginning a middle and an end and a lot of it i mean i do write sometimes political songs and straight ahead novelty songs but a lot of it are is about my family and my life well, which is interesting because it's like you know a lot of Prine songs are not. He makes characters. Yeah, I don't like, do that much. So that you're right. So there's those are the choices. Either you write cryptic songs that people can just you know kind of use as a template to feel whatever they're going to feel mm-hmm. without having any kind of you know not knowing what it means. Yeah, yeah. 
and then you have like st- songs about people you make up and then then there's guys who do the straight stuff you're like the straight guy you're the you go right to the heart of it you're doing the memoir song yeah 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 baby the real deal <laughs> that's it i'm the real deal i'm the real damn deal but like when you're writing as a kid, you know, when you wrote, you know, Loud and One and stuff, you, you know, you, you must have had in your mind, you were judging yourself against, you know, Dylan or whatever, right? Yeah. And you're like, I got to I gotta nail this thing. Well, I had to figure out, like again, like everybody else in show business, when you start, you've got to figure out uh, what to look like and, you know, how to separate yourself from the pack. How'd you do with that? Well, I I, I assumed that I took I took up the costume of my youth. I I looked like I had short hair. If you yeah. look at that first album, everybody else had long hair and, and bell bottom pants. Right. I had kind of a Brooks brother blazer and and gray flannel pants. Yeah. And uh, so right away there was a, a different look. Right. And then uh, I started to sing a lot about myself. So you're preppy ish. Yeah, preppy psycho killer look. Right, not Kingston trio. No, no, no. That would have no, no, no. That that's too. That's late fifties. <laughs> right, so. but they were all pretty clean cut. Seemed preppyish, yeah, right? And, yeah, and, but striped shirts. I think. Yeah, as I, no, recall. I would never wear a striped shirt. <laughs> Don't tell them what I'm wearing today. That's a nice uh, plaid. I a nice multicolored plaid. Thank I, you. It is striped. I, oh, it's, oh it's, I thought there was. Oh, it's not a plaid. Striped shirt. <laughs> Fashion on the radio is great, isn't it? Yeah, but it's not Kingston Trio. Style. No, no, no. That, that, that's a vertical. They, they were short sleeve shirts. Yeah, the Kingston yeah. Trio. Oh, thank God, because they all matched exactly. You know? Yeah, that, that was the big mistake. So, all right. So you're doing these records. The Skunk Song happens. You know, you have this relationship with the label with Clive Davis. Or what, what? What's happening around you in music at that point? What are you up against? Because like you've you've really you know kept going. Yeah. <laughs> But and, and at different times, music is changing around yeah. you constantly. But you you're locked into uh, Americana music, one you know folk or or you know country ish. I write the songs on an acoustic guitar. Yeah. you know, usually record them with that, and it's the same five chords that I learned when I was fifteen. What happened was I just kept my head down and kept writing songs. Right, but when 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 did things get bad? Like, at what point did did the family structure start to the vessel start to kind of shake? Uh, you, you know, like in terms of you, you know, you put these records out. You're not selling records. You got to be on the road. Mm-hmm. You're you're building a following. However, right. you're doing it. Right. And and at some point, you said that you started drinking and that you did get bitter, and that made it into the music a bit, but yeah. it didn't seem to sink you. No, no, I, I, you know, I didn't have, I have, I've had a pretty good time actually. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've, I, you know, I've, I've, uh, uh, some been like, in, like anybody's life, there's collateral damage. Sure. You know, but I've, I've really, it, it hasn't been bad for me. Yeah. You know, I, I haven't been severely depressed. Uh, right. Or, or I had a nervous, when my mother died in 97, I, I kind of fell apart, but that was, that was appropriate. Normal. Sure. Natural. So, so by and large, you know, I just kept my head down and did the job and I liked playing and, and that's still what I'm kind of doing. And how and what is your how how does your how did your following evolve? How did you find that you got the people, the fan base? What did they come for? And how long have they been with you? Well, a lot of them have been with me for the ride. I mean, sometimes I'm shocked when I see my my you know I drive up to the club and I see these old people. I think they're there for the bingo. Yeah, right. I mean, 
but then it's dark and they're so beautiful and warm and they love me and but then other things happen you know we mentioned judd i mean i i did this uh, i was in this show that judd apatow did uh undeclared yeah so as a result of something like that all of a sudden there were young people there Uh so or fans of my of my son and rufus and Uh martha or something uh, so, so you know, occasionally there's uh, some uh, young people up there. Sure, but it must be it must be wild because, like, you know, have you had that experience where? <laughs> I mean, how old are you? Do you mind? Seventy one. So you're seventy one, and you know you've had you've had a good go at it. Yeah. <laughs> you've, you've 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 lived your life. Do you have that moment where you go back to places and a woman comes up to you and goes, "Do you remember me?" Yeah, that's happened. Yes, and invariably, no, I don't. But I say, of course I do. And my line is, through the mists of time, here we are. And uh, no, that just happened to me, actually. Yeah? Yeah. Like with somebody your age? Uh, Yeah, somebody my age. It's wild, right? And a very nice person. And uh, so I said hello and apologized, and we let it go at that. (laughs) <laughs> you apologized. I, I didn't apologize. <laughs> she true. apologized. Well, that well, that's funny though because like you're not like I, I guess like the assumption about how a performer lives on the road, you, you know, you're not some sort of crazy party dude. You know, you weren't like some, not anymore. No, yeah, you're not some dangerous, weird uh, <laughs> junkie or freak out there. You're a folk guy. Right. And you're out there getting laid just like anybody else. Yeah. But they must be. Uh, I'm just picturing just pleasant, uh, pleasant ladies. By and large, they were very pleasant, <laughs> as I recall. They were human beings, sure, because they're not they, like you know they're responding to something yeah. very you know. But pure. I hasten to say we're laughing about it, but it's important to point out, at least for me, is that a, a lot of it created a, a guilt and bad feelings and feeling like an idiot and a jerk and a, a, an abuser of power. You know, to and and again, it it in terms of my domestic life. You know, I had the, the marriage with Kate, then I was with uh, Suzy Roach for nine years, and we had a daughter. So those marriages were were kind of smashed up because of my goofing around on uh, the road. A lot of it, yeah, yeah. But it wasn't like your dad; you weren't hiding like seven year relationships necessarily. Uh, I didn't do that. You know, I, I would hide like two week relationships, and right. again, a lot of times. Uh, we're talking about my proclivities a lot, but again, the nature of the job is you go to some town. It's 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 not a relationship at all. It's a you know someone yeah. to go home with, right? So you don't have to face the television set. But but also it's like it's surprising as somebody who well performed. doesn't that happen in your world? Sure, it must. of course. Uh, you know, I I mean I ruined uh, a mar- uh, the, my first marriage like that, but I uh, but I don't have um, I don't have children. I never did that. It's a, I, I don't feel terrible about it. But yeah, I mean, there's something profoundly lonely about a hotel room. I don't know what it is, but you know, when you're on the road, even if it's for a night, you're like, what? What is going, where am I? And you've just am, made love to 300 or 3,000 people. I get right. have adored you. Right. I guess I don't put, factor that in all the time. Yeah, like so. you've done a thing. Right. And then you, so you just, so you kind of take a hostage <laughs> back to the hotel, a love hostage. <laughs> yeah. And they're, they're excited. They are. They they're into it. They're yeah. you know, but what? But you've talked. You sing about this stuff, and it 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 has there there has been like kind of a you know tension that you know. I mean, Rufus came out at you with a song, and I think Martha came at you with a song. Yeah. And there's you know there was like, uh, and I imagine why wouldn't they? You're their dad. You right. do it right. I mean, you've been writing about them since they were infants. Yeah. 
No, so, it's all, you know, if you, you, you got to take it if you're going to dish it out. And, and Rufus and Martha, uh, you know, have certainly uh, taken shots. And uh, I can take it. You know? Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's, uh, Martha wrote this song. Uh, it, uh, you can swear on your radio. Sure, sure. Oh, so yeah. bloody motherfucking right. asshole. Right, yeah. So for for a while, you know, when she used to play, she used to open shows for me in the beginning of her career. So she uh, would do this song and I thought, I would think, boy, uh, she was going out at the time with a singer called Dan Byrne. Uh -huh. I don't know if you know who he is. Re a really talented singer, a bit older than her. Uh -huh. And they had a tough difficult relationship yeah. so I thought boy that's a tough song about Dan you bloody motherfucking asshole <laughs> yeah. so then we're in Paramus New Jersey mm. and Martha goes out and it's to you know it's my audience in, in the in the in the room mm -hmm. primarily because yeah. her career is still moving up so she announces to my audience that this is a song about my dad and then sings bloody motherfucking asshole so that was a moment that I was let's bring up hello <laughs> yes how was that when you got up on stage uh, uh, well I just made a joke I can't you? remember probably yeah. Yeah, yeah I just got through it but why she just so she decided to lay that on you and you had no idea and what what happened after that show? Martha's very provocative I, I'm, I'm sure she would agree with that she yeah. likes to push the envelope sure. I, I agree I, I think that's a good thing to do performers need to sure. wake people up shake people up even if it's her dad even if it's their dad <laughs> before he goes you know? on and, in front uh, of his audience yeah but but it seemed like it was almost like a secret she was keeping for a while because she was playing it yeah, and then at some point she decided, like, well, he, I can't let him think that it's not about him, right? No. Yeah, and then and then, but you never, there was never a point where you guys weren't talking to each other. Oh, no, we've got, we've been there, we've been there. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Let's see, am I talking to Rufus this week? <laughs> now I have another daughter who's an incredible mu musician that yeah. I want to talk about, Lucy Lucy Wayne, right? Yes. Roach, my daughter with Suzzy. Yeah, and she has from the has, Roaches, right? Yeah. Well, Lucy has not written a song attacking me yet, and I really appreciate uh -huh. that. Uh -huh. and, but that's not her style anyway. Yeah, but sometimes I think it's that first uh, group Could of happen, kids. Could happen, though. Sure. But I think it's the first group of kids that all, that think they get the raw end of the stick yeah. the, the most. Yeah. Right? Yeah. In general? Yeah. But Rufus, like, is a spectacular performer and songwriter. And, you know, his, like, I, his song about you, I guess, is what, Dinner at Eight? Yeah. And that's a, it's a sad song. That's a beautiful song. It is. It really is. And it's sad. And, yeah. Uh, and, uh, but I think it's a great song. It's one of his great songs. Well, when you when you process this stuff, what do you think your best album is for you? What's the one that you're like, that was, I really nailed it all the way through on that one? Uh, well, I've made 27 albums. I, I think, uh, and, and you know, some people, and I've made some duds, that's for sure, are albums that I don't really like. Yeah. I, I think there's an album called History that I made in... Uh, it was right after my dad died. Yeah. And that event was such a cataclysmic uh, thing. These songs started to come out, that, I, and I think they're some of my best songs. Yeah, it's a great record. Yeah. It's a great record. And then my, when my mother died, I, I made a record called Last Man on Earth, and a lot of that... Unfortunately, I only have two parents. Yeah. But, you know, those those are two very strong records of mine. Yeah. Yeah, history is like, history is like beautiful. And I think, didn't you do one of your father's songs on yes. that? Yes. My dad wrote a song. Um, there was a guy that he, my, my dad lived, we lived in LA for for a bit in the early 50s. And dad was a friend with uh -huh. Terry Gilkison, who was a, a folk singer, and a, but a, a pop folk singer. He had a group 
they, they sang backup on Dean Martin records, like Memories Are Made of This. Oh, they, they were that weird Hawaiian bunch? Well, they, they were Well, it was, it was folky, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They sang a song called The Wild Goose. Well, that, that song, Memories, has a weird little uke, it's yeah. Got a uke thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But Terry Gilkison yeah. and my father were drinking buddies. Uh-huh. And 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 I think dad, my dad took a shot at writing some songs, ha- hanging out with him, and he wrote a great song about 1950. So yeah. he would have been t- 25. Yeah. Called it "Man, It's Just a Handful of Dust," and that that song is on uh, history. I guess I'm sort of fascinated at, at your self awareness and about because I, I wrestle with the, some of the same things you do. Now, do, is is there redemption after this when you say that you look back or in the moment or or whatever wreckage you've 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 reaped on anybody? Do you you just have an acceptance around it that it eventually resolves itself if, if you don't make it worse, or or do you? Do you still kind of like you just think you're propelled by that? By is there still guilt and you know self hatred and that kind of stuff? Yeah, but but you know, it, I'm get, there's also there is redemption and forgiveness. And, yeah, you know, I mean, my kids are you know my youngest daughter whose name is Alexandra. She's 25, but I mean Rufus is 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 44 and Martha's 40 and Lucy's. Thirty-five, and they all have kids, or uh, Rufus and Martha have kids. So you know, but they're all grown-ups. They've been banged around in the world, and yeah. so so the, there's some forgiveness floating around. Uh, you're right, and right. that and that that that's what I've, you know, one of the things I did in my book was I I included some of the my father's writing. He was a yeah. beautiful, elegant writer. Some of his essays are in the book, and I love the you know he and I had a kind of a crappy relationship, but. He died more than 25 years ago. So there's a forgiveness thing that's going on now between me and him, even though he's been uh, dead. And and if you can't forgive your parents, I'm talking to my kids now, if you can't forgive your parents, you can't forgive yourself. That's my that's my theory at this point. And that, and, but you learn that the hard way. You make a lot of mistakes, and I made plenty of mistakes. I mean, it wasn't, but it wasn't any more than anybody else. Okay. I just wrote about it. Yeah. I had a couple of broken marriages, and I screwed around. I mean, that's it. No, I know, I, I know. Like I, I, I use that one too. Um, like in the sense that you know, it, there is a short menu to to transgression. Yeah, the, yeah. you know, and there's of course there's a big range. Yeah, but you know, certainly there are ones that sort. Of, there's nothing unusual. I didn't drown any puppies. Or no, right? Like yeah, that. and you didn't, uh, you know, bankrupt a country or yeah. kill anybody. Right. 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 You know, you kind of like judge yourself on the the moral transgression chart and how familiar it is culturally. Yeah. And you're like, look, you know, people fuck up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So so please forgive me, kids. <laughs> I'm saying this on the radio, <laughs> but you also re- you seem to wrestle with the very idea of uh, of love. Yeah, love. Yeah, like I do material that's similar to this, and and I'm trying to like get, glean from you because I'm a little younger than you. You know wh- how you resolve some of that stuff. I mean, like, do you? Because I feel like I'm capable of love. Yeah. You know, of, of giving, but there's something that holds me back. Yeah. And and in terms of guilt and and whatever, but like, how have you? I imagine having kids changes that. Well, I have a song called uh, "All in the Family." Yeah. It's all in a family, and that is about love. You know, um, love heals heartache and familial pain, and what family is not insane? Uh-huh. You know, so. The, I, I've been love has been 
working its way into the songs in the last 10 or 20 years. You feel, with, you feel with age and grandkids? Yeah, I think gra- <laughs> grandkids, yeah. You know, and you do uh-huh. realize that, uh, you know, it's kind of corny, but the, 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 L, the love thing is a big thing. Do you ever feel pointlessness? Um, is that a, th- a theme? Well, well, I mean, I wrote a song when I was 25 on my second album called The Suicide Song. Yeah. But, it's a you long know, time ago. It was a long time ago, and I was kind of goofing around anyway. Right. I wasn't really... The worst I ever felt was after my mother died. I really went down hard on How old that. were you? 50. I was, uh-huh. Oh, right. I was 51 or something. So you'd already gone through a lot of your stuff, too. Yeah, I, I'd had, a lot had happened to me, and, and my father had died earlier, and that, that was a, uh, more of a release for me when yeah. he died. When my when my mother died, the the bottom went out. And what what, what was the was the feeling? Just sort of like you know, like a void. Yeah, uh, I I couldn't get out of bed. You know, I yeah. mean, I I've been mildly yeah. depressed for my entire adult life. But sure, this was the real thing. Yeah, you know, I I was really, but but with time. Yeah, and seeing a shrink. Yeah, and some you know lorazepam. I I got back on my feet. Again. Yeah. Oh, good, good. <laughs> and you made. So I want to talk a little bit before we we wrap it up. I, I know you got to do stuff. The uh, the acting and the uh, the sort of TV thing. I had no idea until I looked it up today that you you were actually involved with the the original David Letterman daytime show. Is that true? Yeah, I was uh, the uh, musician sidekick on the couch for the first week. And, and, and that show didn't last that long. Is that what happened? No. Like? Well, they, they did me for a week, and then they thought this isn't great. And then they tried some other guests, and then then they they shifted over to to, to late night and brought Paul Schaefer in, I guess. And like, what was somebody? Because you did act here and there. Like, I mean, how how did that? Who was drag? You know, bringing you into that? Like, you 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 knew the. Like you knew Christopher Guest and McKean and those guys when they had the uh, uh, the sketch of Spinal Tap, correct? Yeah, I was in Spinal Tap in the, in the, the movie in, in the sketch. In the sketch, it was in a Rob Reiner uh, a TV special called The TV Show. Martin Mull was in it, uh-huh. and and, uh, and uh, Harry Shearer was in it, uh-huh. and and the, they they came up with this sketch about a heavy metal band. I was the keyboard player. <laughs> right. You can see me on YouTube. Oh in, yeah, in a wig. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you always sort of were. These were your close friends. So you were sort of, you know, in proximity to comedy all the time. Yeah, yeah. You're always kind of like around. Yeah. And when you met when you met those guys, you okay, you went to college with some of them, but but you you met uh, you saw like in the in the city, like you you were there pre SNL, right? Yeah, when I met when I met I met Chris when he was in this thing called Lemmings. Oh, the National Lampoon Radio Hour. Right. Thing? Yeah. So that was pre, you know, Belushi and Chevy Chase, and and this was two years before Saturday Night Live. And you saw that perform live. Yeah. Where did they perform that? Like the at the, at the Village Vanguard. Oh, which really? Was on Bleecker Street. Yeah, sure, sure. And it was great. It was amazing. It was incredible. That was the, like the dark uh, festival, the yeah. the rock festival. Yeah, that yeah. was the satirical right. answer to Woodstock. That's right, where they all would just go off the edge of the cliff. Right. So you saw Belushi as a young crazy. Yeah, he. I, was, I think he did his Joe Cocker impression. Right. Of course. Right. Of course. And Chris did incredible Dylan and. A wonderful actress who's no longer alive. Alice Platon was in it. And yeah. Gary Goodrow and a lot of great and Chevy. A lot of great people. And you did you did SNL early on too, right? I was in the first season. I was in the third show. Robert Klein was the host. Yeah. And the other musical act was ABBA. Really? And nobody knew who they were. They had just won the Eurovision Song Contest, and they 
they were the only group I, I'm told yeah. that ever lip sank on Saturday Night Live. That first time they did it then, and and Lauren decided that would never happen again. Was there chaos at the show? Was it everyone excited? Was there like uh, like I can't imagine that first season because it, it was more of a variety show, and there was a. Uh, it didn't. It, it, they had fil- short films and you know more. No, singers. it was great. It was you know with the, all the original cast. Yeah, I, I remember the the party after the show we did. Oh yeah, everybody was talking about things. And yeah, going off to the bathroom every once in a while. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> what was that? Did you do Carson or any of those shows? I did. I did Carson uh, yeah. twice. Uh, once with Johnny and once with Doc Severinsen. Guest hosting, yeah, yeah, and I did. You know, I've done. Uh, I did the Mike Douglas show. Are you old oh, enough to remember yeah, sure. that? I used to watch it after school. They sit around the half circle, right? Yeah, yeah. I did. A lo- I did a lot of Mike Douglas shows. Oh yeah, I did Merv Griffin. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And shows you, I have done. Yeah, just but sitting there with guys, it, like to me, you know, like I, I like thinking back on those talents, you know, at that time, it just everything seemed to be more like a community. Yeah, yeah. like everybody seemed to know each other. Is that was am I making that up or do you feel that too? Like you sitting out there like on a on a like a Merv Griffin show and there'd be some comic there and some other guy there, but yeah, it, show business felt small I, to me. I think it was a little looser, maybe. Uh huh. You know, and I don't think that people were, but right. but there were egos flying around and sure and and, and crap and bullshit. But, yeah, yeah. But I, 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 you know, and and uh, it was a long time ago. How'd you do Mash? How'd that happen? Larry Gelbart saw me playing at the Troubadour in L.A in 73 or something yeah. and said hey how about an idea of a singing surgeon and i did three episodes of mash <laughs> that's that's fun yeah it was fun and then all of a sudden you got judd uh, you know uh, putting you in everything judd has been incredible yeah and, um what was the first thing he put you in Undecl- uh, undeclared. undeclared. Yeah. yeah. He when he was a fourteen year old kid growing up in Syosset, Long Island, he yeah. saw me on that Letterman show. Yeah. Then he used to come into town and see me play at the bottom line. When he was a kid? When, when yeah, well probably when, well then he was like eighteen or nineteen. Oh, so he's been a fan a long he's time. He's been a fan a long time. Yeah. And then I got this call about twelve years ago from and I never I did had no idea who he was. I had not seen Freaks and Geeks. Uh-huh. It was weird. Today I I got on a plane from this morning in New York and Martin Starr was sitting oh, next to me. He's we a great guy. About Judd and, yeah. and Freaks and Geeks. And all Martin Starr is an intense dude. He's a good yeah. guy. He slept most of the way. But oh, okay. I could tell he was intense. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. intense. Yeah. So so he puts you on undeclared and then he you know, Yeah, and then, you know, I gave me some parts and uh, some other movies and then I wrote with Joe Henry, my friend Joe Henry. Uh, we wrote the music for Knocked Up, and uh, good stuff from Judd. Yeah, and you did that cover year of uh, another friend's song, right, Daughter? Peter Blakevad, yeah. yes, great Who's song. that guy? That guy is a really interesting guy. He, he's uh, he's an expatriate. He's an American, but he's been living in London for almost 40 years. He was in a, a rock band in the 70s called Slap Happy. Uh-huh. And they played a lot in Europe. He's a great songwriter. He's also an amazing cartoonist and a writer. And uh, hardly anybody knows. Uh, it's a hell of a song. That's a hell of a song. If you Google me, the first thing that comes up is daughter. Uh huh. So I have to always tell people that I didn't write that. Yeah. And, well, it's I a mean, pain in the ass, but like, it's a great song. A, a, at least the skunk things behind you. Yeah, man. That, it used to be skunk. <laughs> now it's daughter. <laughs> you can't get a fair shake on your good shit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right, man. Well, it's great talking to you. The book is beautiful. It's well written. It, you know, it's fun. Um, and what 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 happens now? Are you, do you tour constantly? 
I tour regularly, I'd say. Yeah. You know, um, Judd and Chris are talking about maybe getting together. I have this theater show called Surviving Twin, which is my uh, my songs mixed in with my dad's writing, and I've been doing that, and, and so there's some talk that we might do a film of that. So oh, that's, really? that's the next thing that hopefully will happen. You really, you really are emotionally uh, burying the uh, hatchet with your dad posthumously. The, the more you forgive, the better you feel. Yeah, that's that. that I just made that up just now. <laughs> that's a bumper sticker, isn't it? Or, or a song? Yeah. Okay, I'll get. I'll go back. You get cracking on that. Okay. Thanks, Wadden. Very nice talking to you. Okay, that was that. The book, liner notes is out get it get the book it's good a life in music a life in entertainment Loudon Wainwright dig it can you dig it guitar guitar anyone (laughs) 